And last week we started this series, Becoming a First Century Church. To lay the groundwork, we looked at Matthew chapter 16. We've looked at that a lot recently where Jesus gave the promise that he would establish his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We talked about the word for church in the New Testament. The Greek word is ekklesia, which has to do with a calling out and also with a meeting. So many have said the best definition of the church using that word is a called out assembly. Sometimes it would be used just in a secular sense about calling everyone out to some public meeting, but definitely in a spiritual sense, we are called out of the world. We're called to be the children of God. And also we come together to meet and to assemble physically and bodily. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 25, a famous verse for Baptist, but it is in the Bible. We're told to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. We're not to neglect church attendance, but we're to do the best we can to find a church that's trying to follow the Lord. That's a body of like-minded believers and physically gather Together, We talked a little bit about how the, in the book of Acts we find them and throughout the New Testament meeting on the first day of the week, bringing their offerings, supporting missionaries, taking the Lord's Supper and coming together, hearing the preaching and fellowshipping. We ended up last week in Matthew chapter number 18, 15 through 17, as we considered what that text had to say about church discipline. Uh, this was under the very first point, the only one we actually got to in the outline last week. The first century church started with Christ and his disciples and was empowered at Pentecost. The first century church started with Christ and his disciples and was empowered at Pentecost. So that passage in Matthew chapter 18 describes the process for when a brother has trespassed against you. You go to him one-on-one -on -one and try to help get things right. If he refuses to repent and to hear you, you go back to him with two or three witnesses. If he still refuses, Christ said, take him before the church. And if he will not hear the entire church, then he will be unto you like as unto an heathen man. And so we talked about how the fact that the verses after that, it talks about Jesus saying, if two or more of you agree on anything, you'll be able to do it. If you loose it in heaven, it will be loosed. If you bind it on earth, it will be bound. And then said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And that's where we ended up by talking about last week. I don't think it's just talking about church discipline, but I think it's talking about when Christ has already commissioned us to do something and given his approval, when we come together to do it in his name, he is with us. He has blessed that. We said last week, we can't just say, well, it says that if there's anything that we agree about, we'll be able to do it. It doesn't mean we can say, well, we're going to beat people up and steal their cars and two of us agree on it. So therefore God must be for it. No, it has to do with what Christ commissioned and approved and gave us the authority to do. So after we finished last week talking a little bit about church discipline, that kind of was on my mind these last couple days. So I thought before we move on with the rest of this outline, I'll back up a little. We'll look at some of these passages. I'll clarify that and then we'll move on. That's probably how this study will go. I have a lot of topics kind of spread out that I want to get to. And then there's this lesson plan. So whenever something comes up, I may just kind of stop, chase it down. We'll study it and then keep going forward. 
But at any rate, this is probably one of the most famous passages about church discipline in the Bible is 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. And I think it will help, helpfully help, hopefully help clarify what I mean when I say that and what the biblical model for it is and what the biblical model isn't. Some of these verses, like the beginning of the chapter, I'm going to read with no commentary because they don't really need anyone, but there was any commentary, but we'll see there was public, unrepentant, horrible sin by someone who was in their church, and Paul tells them how they were supposed to deal with it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. So one of the things we'll also see that sometimes there's open, horrible sin by someone who claims to be a member of the church, and if they're refusing to hear those corrective actions, refusing to repent, they may need to come under what we would call church discipline. But notice what he points to directly in verse number 2. He says, "...ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned." The word there behind puffed up has to do with pride. And we'll look at a passage again in a moment that whenever there would be measures taken by the leadership of the church to try to get someone to repent of sin and to get things right, it's to be done with the goal of restoration, with a humble heart, not being proud as they were being. But he said what it should have done was it should have caused mourning. Sometimes we're fast to talk about other people's sins, to gossip, to look down on them, but perhaps we're not as quick as we should be to mourn over the fact that people are in sin and that they need to repent of that sin. Verse 3, it says at the end of the verse that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Then verse 3, for I verily as absent in body, but present in spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. Now, there's passages in the New Testament where Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged. And it talks about thinking you're better than someone else. And there's specific passages like the Pharisee who prayed and he said, thank you, God, that I'm not like this publican is, for I go to church, I give my tithes, I fast. Thank you that I'm not as bad as this sinner is. But what was the publican doing? We find in the story he was beating his chest. He was saying, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. So there is a, a context in which you judge someone that's bad and it's sinful. We think that we're better than them or we don't know the whole story, but we make up our mind about them and we can find ourselves judging one another as Jesus said not to. However, here in this verse, Paul said... I've already judged as though I were there. The word that he's using here has not to do with that thinking you're better than someone and judging them, but rather with discernment, with making what we would say sometimes, even our language today, well, sometimes you just got to make a judgment call. You got to decide. And Paul said, I have come to a determination and a decision and a judgment about what should be done. Verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, that's the church coming to meet, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved 
in the day of the Lord Jesus. So then the instruction was to remove him from the church, and in so doing, Paul described it as delivering him unto Satan, but with the goal that the flesh would be destroyed, that eventually he would repent, and that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Let's read a little bit further. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There he's using a bit of an allegory for the bread and how the leaven represented false doctrine and sin and error. And he's saying we need to not have that or it's going to destroy the whole thing. Whatever the application, that's certainly true in our heart, but perhaps he was talking about this situation in the church, that if you just allow people who profess to be saved to continue in horrible, open, unrepentant sin, then you're going to allow it to spread and it's going to be bad. Verse 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Now that verse could, if we just read it out of context by itself, which by the way is always a danger. There's certainly verses, I think of Proverbs, we'll look at one tonight, where before it in the chapter and after it in the chapter, it has nothing to do with that one verse. And the whole truth is contained right in that one verse. It punches and then it starts talking about something else. But most all of the time when you come to a verse, you need to look what was written before it. What was written after it? Who was talking to whom? Does it apply to me? What, you know, we, if we take just one verse as a proof text sometimes, we miss the point. So when he says, don't company with fornicators, we might think, well, he's saying those people who are lost, who are wicked, I shouldn't be hanging out with them all the time and then be my friends. But that's not what he's primarily talking about here in this passage. Look at verse 10. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then must he needs go out of the world. He said there's only one way that you can totally not ever have any associations with people who are involved in really bad sins. That would be go out of the world completely, because sin is so prevalent in the world. Verse 11, But now have I written unto you not to keep company, if a man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do ye not judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Okay. So the last three verses there, he says it's a man that is called a brother who is openly, continually going onward and forward, refusing to hear anyone who would come to him and tell him that he's wrong, tell him that he needs to be corrected, that it's sin, that he needs to repent. If it's a man that's called a brother or a sister in Christ, he says you're supposed to separate from that person and with such an one, no not to eat. That no not means not even. So basically not even to sit down and share a meal and continue onward with them as if nothing had changed. And then verse 12, when he talks about them that are without and them that are within, 
He's talking about the lost, those who are without the church, and the saved, those who are within. So in other words, there's a different standard for someone who has joined to the church and and who comes and says, I'm following Jesus Christ, that if they refuse to hear any of the steps when people in love come with a heart of meekness and of restoration to try and say, we want to help you, this is wrong, you need to turn from that, then at some point it says again in verse 13, put away from yourselves that wicked person. Now, I personally don't even believe this means, well, they can't attend the church. Uh, I was talking to Brother Andrew a couple weeks ago, and he said some of the churches where he'd visit and came from, they called it getting churched. That was the phrase. And it meant you were in sin. Tell me if they meant something different, but basically corrective action needed to be taken place. And they were told you're sort of being separated from church membership and the privileges of it. You're still welcome to come to the service as a visitor or as a lost person was, but you're being told that you're being separated somewhat and disciplined because you won't turn from your sin. You won't hear. Is there anything else you want to add to that or things that you've seen? Well, that's the proper way to do it, I think. But the way I was talking about was they did it wrong. They were like just okay. kicking them out, basically kicking them out of church and just saying, like, don't even come, don't show up. We're not talking like we're done with you. Don't speak okay, so he was saying that they he kind of knew some people in the context of church meant you're not even allowed to show up. Now, okay, so I saw a story on the news a a while ago, and the news likes to cover these kind of stories because they want to try to make the church look bad. Well, there was a teenage boy in the church who had been coming there for years. His family were members. He was a member of the church. And then he started telling people, well, I'm going to live. I'm a homosexual. That's the way I'm going to live. There's nothing wrong with that. So they went to him. And again, what's the process is trying to model what Matthew 18 said. Okay, so I I, I don't know in what order I'm going to get to all of this. But in other words, it doesn't mean if we found out that someone did something wrong this week, that we're going to bring them up in front of the church and we're going to scold them. And that's how we discipline them. I don't think that's what the Bible's teaching. I don't even think the Bible's teaching. Well, so uh, some lady calls the church and says, well, my husband... He went to the bar and got drunk this week. And the pastor calls him and he says, what's going on? I heard that something happened. And he says, you know what, pastor, I've been struggling with that. And would you please help me and hold me accountable? I'm sorry. I repent. It doesn't mean he has to get up in front of the whole church and get scolded and disciplined or get kicked out. for Because if we were to stop and correct everyone for all the sins they ever committed, we'd be taking up too much time. We wouldn't even be able to preach. But Matthew 18 describes someone who sinned against you. You go to them. You try to work it out. You come back the second time with more people. Try to work it out. You come back the third time with the whole church. Try to work it out. And they still are refusing. Well, then you treat them as if they were a lost person. Then you put them under that discipline. And even what Paul is saying, if you had a friend who said what that that teenager said about himself... I don't think you just keep fellowshipping with them the exact same way that you were before and go to their house and pretending like nothing is wrong. And so the media came to that church to talk to the pastor and what's going on? He said, oh, well, this is just the biblical is what we believe, the doctrine of church discipline. It's not just that sin. It's anything that if someone refuses to repent of. So basically we just removed him from membership and its privileges, but he's welcome to come attend the services and we love him and we're praying for him. And that was the way that they carried it out. And I think that's what Paul was talking about here in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, deliver him unto Satan, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. 
Now, obviously, you might have someone who wants to come to church to call out the pastor or to play rap music on their phone during the singing or to do other crazy things, and you'd have to physically remove that person, or someone who would be what is called a wolf. I'm sure we'll look at that eventually when we look at what the responsibility of the leaders of the church are. Paul said, look out for the wolves that come in in sheep's clothing. Someone comes in who keeps trying to isolate people and teach them false doctrine, or even worse, seduce them to do wrong or things that would be criminal, then someone does need to step up and as a shepherd protect the flock of God. So I do believe that what it's teaching from this passage in Matthew 18 is for open, unrepented sin after multiple attempts to humbly come and love and restore that person. That's when you would have the church discipline or that's when you would have maybe a bit of an arm's length even in your personal fellowship because you're trying to get across to them what you're doing is wrong. Um, there was a, a man on American Family Radio. He said he had a friend that he was a pastor and he had a friend that he played golf with all the time. And the guy just casually while they were playing golf said, well, yeah, I'm going to divorce my wife. And oh, really? Well, what's the reasons and what did she do? Oh, I'm just, I don't want to be married to her anymore. It's not really, you know. And so what he did was he started to tell him you're wrong. And the guy didn't like to be told he was wrong. And he got mad because he eventually stopped playing golf with them. And he came to visit his church and he didn't introduce his name or make a big deal about the fact that he was there because he said, basically, it's someone who claims to be a Christian saying, I'm going to do something that the Bible clearly says is wrong and I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. As a church or in our personal life, there should be a little bit of a, not a rejection, but of a separation and of lovingly saying, God, please help me get to this person and restore them. But I can't pretend that sin is okay. I can't pretend that there's anything wrong with that. So I do think when someone new comes to join the church, I think they need to be saved. They need to be baptized and probably needs to be a requirement for them to join the church that they're not under church discipline from another church for some definite, horrible, clearly defined biblical sin that they didn't want to deal with that church about, so they just run away to another one. And obviously people can lie about that or whatever they they choose to do, but I do think that should be the case, that they should try to make things right with those who they've offended before they simply move on to something else. Okay, so when you do come to a church, there is something then, if you could be removed, as Paul said to do to this person, there is something there about church membership. Maybe just about not staying home all the time and visiting somewhere here and then visiting somewhere there. Eventually, I think there's something biblical about joining to one particular local church, body in Christ. And when you do come to join, there is a sense in which you're saying, I'm joining myself to some accountability. I am in some ways agreeing to submit to the leadership of the elders, the pastors, whatever you want to call it, of the church. And I'll have more to say about all of that at another time. Okay, First Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter five and verse 17. I think I referenced a lot of these scriptures in passing last week. So I decided to actually go to them and, and sort of teach this through before we move on. First Timothy chapter five and verse number 17. 
Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. We'll have more to say about this next week if we get there, but elder is that position of spiritual leader, pastor, overseer in the church, is my belief. Verse 18, For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. And against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Here, evidently, the word of God is saying to beware about slander and false accusations against those who are leading in the church because they'll be a target of the devil. And perhaps false accusations and slanders, which we know do happen, will be a tool that the devil uses. However, it doesn't say don't listen, never believe, just assume that a church leader could never do anything wrong. It says don't receive the accusation unless there's two or three Witnesses. That's taught all throughout the Bible. That's how you establish a matter. When they came to testify against Jesus at his trial, they paid witnesses, but then the text says their testimony could not agree. Even though they rehearsed it, even though they were paid, their testimony was inconsistent. So when there's two or three credible accusations, then you can take it seriously. And when it's proven to be true, verse 20 says, "...them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear." In the context there of talking about the leaders in the church. I said last week that disgracefully there's been different news stories run by the Catholic, about the Catholic church, about independent Baptist churches, and about Southern Baptist churches where church leaders were involved in sin and scandals and rather than giving them a rebuke and making it public and letting it be known so that others also may fear, which is verse 20 says is the purpose of it, they were allowed to go off to some other place, some other church and take a brand new position without anyone even knowing about it all the way down to people who wronged children and abused them were sent to other churches with no one being warned that they had done wrong. And according to what the Word of God says, that's wrong. That should not happen. And the qualifications for a bishop is that they would be blameless. And that word has to mean something. So there may even be someone who did something wrong that eventually could be restored to a position of leading in the church. And it doesn't mean they can't be in the church, can't fellowship, can't serve. But those who enter into scandalous sins that were leaders in the church should be removed, they should be rebuked, and the flock of God should be protected. It's never about one person or one personality. God can bring someone else in to do his work if that's what he chooses to do. If I were to start teaching blasphemy or have moral sins in the church, should use someone else. It's just what the Bible teaches. It's what the word of God says. So be careful about false accusations, but those that are found to be credible, rebuke the leaders that sin before all that others also may fear. Um, One more here. I was going to read you this verse if I have it. Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 1 is a really good one. It says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So what is the goal? When someone has sinned, when someone has been overtaken in a fault, these steps that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 18, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's not to be puffed up, as he said. It's not to be proud or to think you're better. The goal is to love that person and to see them repent 
and be restored. It says if he's overtaken in a fault, something he's doing that's wrong has consumed him, then the ones that are spiritual restore him in the spirit of meekness. Then he says this, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So the Apostle Paul makes a line between if we were to judge someone else and think that we're better than them and be proud instead of loving them and seeking in meekness, which is lowliness and humility, then we're forgetting the fact that we're not considering ourselves, And in our pride, we can be tempted to sin and to do wrong also. So that is the goal. There's also a verse here in Proverbs 17, verse 9, that says this, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. I think that verse goes in line with what we were talking about earlier when we said it's not just that someone sinned and they're sorry about it and they want to make it right. We don't just need to call out everyone and tell their sins. We know enough from the Bible that we're not supposed to cover our sins, meaning we're trying to hide them from God and from others. But here it says, if you cover a transgression, you're seeking to love that person. Then it contrasts it with the second part of the verse, which is repeating a matter, which causes a friendship to be destroyed. Maybe one person did something wrong and they're not trying to cover it in the sense of hiding their sin, but they're trying to get things right. And if you were to cover it up, in other words, not tell people about it, you'd be seeking love. But if you go around repeating what that person did and what happened, you're going to split up friendships. So you see what the goal is. It's not simply to gossip or to think that we're better than someone. The goal is to love someone and restore them in the spirit of meekness. Proverbs ten twelve: hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. That verse is quoted then in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 8. One more example before we move on about, I think, the wrong way. I heard a story recently that supposedly there was a young girl in a church who had sinned morally, and in order to be punished and to be called out, she was made to stand up at the front of the service during the entire sermon in front of the congregation that was about her sin. I don't know if that's true as I heard it. I don't know anything about her life, but my goal, my guess would be if that had happened to someone, the most likely scenario is that they'd never walk in a church again and they'd be shut off from the opportunity to be restored. So the goal then, if someone has sinned and is refusing to repent, is not to humiliate them, not to embarrass them, not to judge them, not to think ourselves better, but to love them and to restore them. And I haven't done much of it yet, but I know from being raised by a pastor, a lot of a pastor's life is sitting in an office with someone whose heart is broken, whose life is a mess, who's made a really big mistake and needs to hear from someone, I love you and I'm going to help you. Not that I'm here to call you out or to embarrass you or to drive you away from Christ, but rather to draw them further. So as we go forward, if this is what Christ has called us to do, then let us stand for the truth. Let's not turn into a social club that doesn't care about the spiritual health of one another. Let's love and try to help that person. Let's stand for the truth. Let's not let it go, sin go unchecked that can hurt other sheep in the congregation. But let's also not forget what the goal is, which is to love people and to care about them and to restore them. Okay, the first century church started with Christ and his disciples and was empowered at Pentecost. 
Um, the Lord gave the Great Commission and the ordinances to the church, not just to anyone, not to a simple group of followers, not even to individual leaders of a home to be carried out for his family, but to that called out assembly that meets the biblical definition of the church, the Lord gave two things. He gave the Great Commission and he also gave the ordinances, which we believe are the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. I think with the time that we have left tonight, we'll just look at two more passages. Uh, Acts chapter 2 here has to deal with Christ giving us the Great Commission. And then we'll look at a passage in 1 Corinthians that has to do with the ordinance of the Lord's Supper that was given and tie in a little bit more of that discussion actually that we started off with about church discipline. And we'll probably end up there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Acts chapter 2 in verse number 1. Now, in chapter 1, Jesus had told them that what they were to do was to be witnesses for him after that they had received power. And what he was referring unto as the power of God being given unto them happens here in chapter 2 and verse number 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That was unity. That word one accord meant they were all like-minded. And we preached about that one of the first weeks that I was the pastor, about how we're never going to agree with every single little thing with every single person. And if we do, it's probably a sign that it's not healthy because we're probably just following one man and his opinions instead of looking to the Word of God ourselves and trying to decide for, you know, not just decide for ourselves, but come to what the truth is. But what God does want us to have is unity, unity for the gospel, unity to want to love people, unity to want to see the work of God go forward. Verse two, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. We'll just read through verse eight. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because they heard them speak in his own language. What you'll see in these closing verses, the gift of tongues, the miracle of tongues, was that they understood in their own language that they already spoke they miraculously understood someone who was speaking a different language in order that they might be saved. We don't believe that it was ever an unintelligible tongue or out-of-body experience, but look at what he says in verse 7. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue where we were born? So it would be as if I went to China and started in English preaching the gospel and God did a miracle and let them in Chinese understand what I was saying so that they could be saved. But that's when the Holy Spirit was given. That same day was the miracle of tongues. 3,000 people were saved, baptized, and added to the church in one day. And it didn't always happen like that. But from that day forth, they began to send missionaries, go to different cities, preach in the synagogues, preach in the marketplace, and people got saved. And then what did Jesus say to do? Um, that's not in Acts chapter 1. Acts 1, eight. 
But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That's what they did. It was commissioned by Christ, started with him and his disciples, and then was empowered by the Holy Ghost at Pentecost to go forward to preach the gospel. And what did he say in the Great Commission? Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. So it was go spread the gospel. After they get saved, baptize them. After they're baptized, disciple them. Teach them the things that I have taught you. So baptism is certainly an ordinance of the church that's to be carried out through the local church. Um, we Andrew talked about Acts chapter 8 Sunday and Philip baptized someone in the wilderness, but he was, I believe, someone who was at least a missionary commissioned by the church ordained to go forth and to preach the gospel. So that's how baptism is to be carried out, is through the local church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this is where we'll finish up tonight. The Lord's Supper is the other ordinance of the church, which I need to schedule very soon. I think we'll try to at least observe that once a quarter as a church family. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and let's begin reading in verse 19. Now, if you hadn't known from reading chapter 5, the church at Corinth was a mess. They had a lot of issues to clean up. They had that guy in immorality that they needed to kick out of the church. Then we see here in 1 Corinthians 11, they were disrespecting the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. They were doing it wrong. Verse 19, For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And I think we'll see from what he says in the verses following, is he saying they're doing it wrong. When they're coming together into one place, the primary goal is not just to eat and to drink, but rather it's to remember the death, body, and blood of the Lord. Some people have taken this verse. I, just, I come into so many things recently I've never even heard before, and they say you're never supposed to have the Lord's Supper at church because you're supposed to have it at home. But let's read on what he says in verse 21. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say unto you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. So I think what he's saying is you have houses for regular eating and drinking. But the Lord's Supper is not supposed to just be a party. It's about remembering the death, the body, the blood of Jesus Christ. He said what they were doing is that some was coming and taking too much and other people weren't getting any of the Lord's Supper. Someone was hungry. Another was getting drunk. And he says, this is not what you're supposed to do. And he says, you're despising the church of God. Again, another phrase in the New Testament. Remember last week we showed up, Paul said to Timothy, he wrote to him, that ye may know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. So the church, the gathering place in a New Testament context, was called the house of God. Here it's called the church of God. And he's saying you have houses to eat and drink in, so they weren't just meeting in a house, 
Though we mentioned last week there's three places in the New Testament where he says to the church that is in thy house. So there were churches that were meeting in a house. There's nothing wrong with that. Churches can meet anywhere. But he's saying when you're at home, that's when you're supposed to eat and drink as you would a regular meal. But when you come together to one place, he's talking about the meeting place. So there's nothing wrong with having a church building. Verse 23. Then he talks about the ordinance of what was given to the church. What is the Lord's Supper? For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. What is the purpose of it? This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had sucked, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of of me. So even in what Jesus said, he says, as oft as ye drink it. He was sort of establishing this eating of the bread, the drinking of the fruit of the vine to do what? To remember the Lord Jesus Christ. It says it two, three times here in this passage. Verse 26, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. So the Apostle Paul says he delivered the ordinances unto them, that which he received from God. And then he says you're going to often, that as often as you eat it and drink it, you're going to be showing the Lord's death till he come. You're going to be remembering it. You're going to be illustrating it. So the church partaking of the Lord's Supper together as a body is to be a somewhat regular occurrence that happens until Jesus comes back. But remember what he started off talking about was how they were doing it wrong. They were disrespecting it. Verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That word there, unworthily, has to do with irreverently or unworthily. It's referring probably to what he was just talking about five verses ago, how they weren't taking it seriously. They were sinfully carrying out the way that they partook in the Lord's Supper. So there is a sense there that, that if we know we have open, uh, that if we have unrepentant sin in our heart, we need to get that right because God was correcting them for sinfully partaking and irreverently partaking in the Lord's Supper. So no doubt if we have sin in other areas of our life, we need to confess it or forsake it, or else we need to be afraid that God's going to judge us for taking the Lord's Supper unworthily or irreverently. Verse 28, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So real quick, before we close out the chapter where God says he's judging them for sinfully partaking of this ordinance of the church, which is to be treated with respect, which is to be treated as a holy thing to remember the body and blood of Jesus. He says, God will judge you for sinfully partaking of that. But he says in verse number 28, but let a man examine himself. There's another issue that's somewhat controversial that I think very good people have different opinions and I've heard as many for one as I have the other. And some churches practice what they call closed communion, which means only church members are allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. The only reasoning I've been able to come up with that in all of my studying is they say, well, maybe if another person is visiting from another church, Maybe they're under church discipline, and so it would be wrong for them to get to partake of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. 
That seems to be the only issue. And I, I get a little bit more today as I think about it, what they're saying, that if there is somewhat of a line that someone separated from church, uh, if, if like that person was coming in who's living in open sin that's been rebuked from membership comes in, maybe we should be pretty careful about letting them take the Lord's Supper. At a minimum, we need to warn everyone strongly. But in the text, there's not a direction to withhold the supper from anyone. There is a direction to let a man examine himself and decide for himself if he's approaching the Lord's Supper the right way. So it's what we've always practiced under my dad and my personal belief and opinion. Again, not that there's only one right way, but is that we will do what is called open communion that will preach the text, warn everyone, hey, you better not be partaking of this if you've got sin going on because God's going to judge you. But you examine your own heart and decide what you want to do. I remember... Um, when Karen's family was visiting with us uh, a, a while ago before they went to their other church that they weren't technically members, but while we were taking the Lord's Supper, they partook in it. And I remember thinking about that at that time. I don't think there's anything wrong with if I'm traveling out of state being able to participate in the Lord's Supper because what is it? It's simply an ordinance to remember the death, body, and blood of the Lord. And again, as I said, there's a lot of good people who have different opinions, and I believe they're coming at it the right way. But I, for me, that is what I believe will practice, is let someone decide for themselves if they want to partake of the elements to just remember the body and blood of the Lord. Or I've, I've, there's been people here from other churches that teach close communion, and so they turn down the Lord's Supper, not because they have unrepentant sin, but because they're following what they believe their church is doing to, to follow the Bible the best of their ability. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. We'll just let everyone decide what it is that they want to do. Okay, let's read out the end of the chapter and then we'll be done. For Verse 29. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The word there, the Greek word behind damnation means severe judgment. Sometimes in the Bible, it simply says judgment. Sometimes it says condemnation. It just means severe judgment from God. Verse 30. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. We looked at this text when we talked about the Lord punishing Christians who are saved, but say, I'm not going to repent of my sin. There were many in the congregation who were weak and sickly. And then the word sleep there is the word for death. There were multiple people within the church who God made sick or allowed them to die because they were in their sin, disrespecting the Lord's Supper and the way it was to be observed, which should make us take it very seriously. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. If you're hungry, have dinner before you come. Don't come to the Lord's Supper and try to fill up on that. That's what he's saying. And the rest will I set in order when I come. It's 7.59. We're out of time, so we'll stop there tonight. As I said, I don't know how many weeks this series will be. It will probably go on for quite a while because we'll just kind of stop and go where the issues come up and try to give a biblical explanation. And I'll say this, you could spend a lot of time looking at other churches and talking about what they're doing wrong. And sometimes they're blatantly wrong. Sometimes we might need to talk about that to give an example. 
But I will say from, from my heart, my goal, and hopefully the goal of our church is simply to follow the Bible to the best of our ability. And if there's other churches that believe in Jesus, we might look at what they do. We might sometimes without calling out names say, well, some people do this and I don't really agree with that because of, you know, whatever. But the goal is not to say we're the only ones who have it right or to call other people out for being wrong. But let's just humbly say, let's follow the word of God to the best of our ability, because that is the goal, not tradition, not anything else, but simply the Bible itself. All right, it's 8 o'clock, and that's when we're supposed to be done. But before we dismiss in prayer, did anyone have a question or thought or anything tonight? So if we go late, it'll be your fault. <laughs> Jason. Do you want to have an offering time tonight? Because one way we can do it is just leave the plate there, and I'll watch over it. Yeah, the, the plate will be on the corner of the table. If you had anything you wanted to give tonight, you could just drop it in on your way off. We'll, way out. We'll do it that way. Anyone else? God bless you all. Thank you for coming out. I love each and every one of you. It's always a win-win when you offer to take questions and then no one has anyone, so then I don't have to answer any hard questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us come here tonight. Help us strive to be a biblical first century church to the best of our ability to follow what the Bible teaches. I pray that you'd be with our brother John Spivey and his medical condition that he's going through, Lord, that you would help him be able to find the right answers for that, give him strength, give him health. We pray the same for Ronnie's aunt who has cancer, Lord, that you would please be with her. That's such a scary thing to go through, that you would bring healing and bring comfort. We pray for Matthew, that he would be able to find a certified flight instructor job as soon as possible. And also for Mel's, uh, the person she gave prayer requests for tonight, Lori, and the mammogram and what she's going through, that you would comfort her heart and allow there to be good reports and health. I pray you bless our church as we go forward. Help us to love one another and love people as we try to stand for the truth. May we not forget that the heart of God is a heart of love, mercy, forgiveness, and restoration. We thank you for your word, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>